Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up on the show, Jennifer Egan has a new book out. It's called The Candy House. And today she tells us how she keeps track of all the different characters whose lives she weaves together. Each chapter is about a different person and it introduces us to another constellation with this particular person at the center of it, which of course inevitably reaches in every possible direction. Plus, we learn about the rescue dog pipeline that's saving pups in the U.S. People want dogs. There's just incredible demand for um, for, for these animals um, for, for lots of reasons that we, <laughs> that we know well. But first, let's take a moment to unwind from the week with two excellent humans with us today. We have Kat Chow. She's a journalist and writer who wrote a memoir last year called Seeing Ghosts. Kat, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be on. And we have Margaret Willison. She's a culture writer. Her newsletter is called Two Bossy Dames. She co-hosts a TV podcast called Appointment Television. Margaret, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much for having me, Greta. I am so excited to have both of you. I'm such a fan of both of you on Pop Culture Happy Hour, mm-hmm. among other things, too. So this is just a delight. Oh, glad to be on with Margaret, too. Yeah, same. As I always say, the best admiration societies are mutual admiration societies. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sweet. Okay, so I don't know if y'all picked up on this, but there apparently was a significant celestial event on Tuesday. Um, It was the first time in more than 150 years that Jupiter and Neptune were both in Pisces. Now, I have no idea what that means, but we did find an expert who can tell us. This is astrologer Eliza Kelly. She wrote a book called This Is Your Destiny, and she also wrote a piece about the event for the cut, and here's what she has to say. We know that the symbolism of Jupiter is about expansion. The symbolism of Neptune is about the collective conscious, the sort of the the spirit, the zeitgeist of a time. And if you were to sort of just find the the word that captures the spirit of this astrological happening, it would be a vibe. <laughs> so I could only assume that <laughs> something that is happening that is so rare, that is so powerful, that is so special, is going to yield none other than the elusive vibe shift. I love the idea of a vibe shift. I find this to be fascinating. What do you think? Is this something that you're picking up on, Kat? You feel it in the air? (laughs) Oh, as far as a vibe shift, I mean, I don't know if because it's finally getting kind of nice weather in D.C. where I live. (laughs) That is why I've caught a vibe. Uh, You know, I'm just like slightly happier, more chill, uh, excited about potential hot girl summer coming. Although there is this new wave. I know. Potential. Potential. Yeah. We got to hold on to the hope. (laughs) Yes. So I really, I mean, I do feel a vibe, but it could be weather related. I do love astrology though. You know, I'm a Scorpio, so 
<sighs> I, I hope that I can capture that and continue to. <laughs> what do you think, Margaret? Well, like Kat, I'm an astrology person. I consider it part of my late in life recognition of my queerness. Mm. Um, and I think it was actually probably easier for most of my friends to accept that like, oh, yeah, like you're dating, you're dating same sex people now than it was for them to accept that like, oh, you think astrology means something. I'm like, yeah, honestly, I mean, like, obviously it's fake, but like, also, <laughs> I am, well, exactly, Kat, exactly. Yeah. But also, like, I am a Taurus born on the cusp of Gemini, and somehow yes. I have all of the good qualities of both sides and none of their flaws. So, Ooh, good for you know, you. it's just, it. it's just <laughs> facts are facts. Um, and so that's one thing on Vibe Shift. Thing two on Vibe Shift is I am and have been my whole life like dangerously superstitious, right? Mm. Like I couldn't get into the whole noodles, bones, no bones movement, which was this elderly pug who is supposed to be predicting the quality of your day based on whether he would stay standing up after his owner had sort of made him erect or just flop back over like I couldn't oh do it gosh. because I was like well what if it's a no bones day and I need I good just luck. can't handle it <laughs> okay so it's a no bones morning no bones morning I don't think that's bad news I think it's just something to keep in mind so like if today was the day you were planning to call your sister and tell her you just hate her husband like today is not the day to do that so like am I am I capable of resisting the concept of a vibe shift no especially not when like so badly do I need my Maybe, vibe like, to be shifted desperately need a, a vibe <laughs> like, shift. like any yeah. like I don't want to say any new vibe right then you're welcoming the doomscape yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's what everyone did and like January 1st, 2020, they were like, anything yeah. new. And then we were like, no, not no, this. No, not that, not that. <laughs> Literally yeah. anything else. Uh, I would like it to be distinct uh, from what we're experiencing now and also better. <laughs> yeah, well, and we are a week from Taurus season also as a Taurus. I am thrilled by that. Greta, I should have known. <laughs> I could just, just feel it. Just all about the good things, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, so, Kat, you kind of hinted at COVID things, which is the next thing I want to talk about, because things are weird, y'all. Like, so this week we learned 72 fancy humans got COVID after going to a dinner in Washington, D.C. Philadelphia is reinstating its mask mandate in public places. I was supposed to moderate an event in person earlier this week, but the star of the show got COVID, so we had to cancel it. Um, I feel like it's this weird time where like numbers are going up, but hospitalizations are still low, but nobody's doing anything about it. I don't like Margaret. Where are you on this? I am in a very complicated place, Greta. So one, I don't know why we stopped with the like, it seems like every time the things we have in place to contain COVID start working, we're like, uh, Lol, JK, let's stop doing those. (laughs) Right? So I I hate that. But at the same time, I'm kind of fundamentally unwilling to go back to, like, deep COVID protocol time. Like, I will wear a mask wherever you want me to. But, like, please don't take my live events away from me. (laughs) I I need to go to concerts. Will all of my masks have, like, a regretful lipstick stain inside of them? Like, yes, (laughs) every single one does. (laughs) But I just think a regretfully lipstick-stained mask. Like, I would rather my Charlotte Tilbury lipstick languish than just Mm. the the dropping of the mask mandates before it actually makes that much sense to drop the mask mandates. Mm. I feel as though I can never really trust that we're in between COVID waves. I am actually just recovering from COVID. Mm, yeah, I got it last month. 
Yeah. yeah. And I don't know how to comport my life anymore. You know, yeah. I mean, gone are the days of indoor dining with friends really comfortably. But mm-hmm. then at the same time, it's okay. What numbers do I monitor? Do right. I trust uh, the numbers right now? Because I know a lot of people are doing at home tests. So yeah, I guess it's back to sort of the Victorian era of outdoor strolls for a bit. Just <laughs> mm-hmm. the, just to wait and see if things are calming down. Yeah, it does. Like the phrase I keep thinking of, which is stupid, but it's in my brain is like, it just feels very Wild Westy right now, where it's like obviously still a thing, but there's just less and less like support around how to mitigate it and navigate it. And that's just so confusing. Yeah, it's super fun because <laughs> what I love is both stress and then an enormous amount of uncertainty about how best to proceed around the things causing me stress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's... As a change of first Taurus, it really suits my nature. <laughs> <laughs> it's exhausting. It's completely exhausting. So, Kat, are you doing okay now? I'm sorry to hear you got sick. I am. You know, there was a, a few days of 103-degree fever, oh. but I bounced back within about a week, and now okay. I feel fine. Let's I'll knock on wood. Yeah. Um, but yeah, for a while it was a bit of a doozy. So it's still no joke. I'm, you know, vaxxed, boosted, and all that. Yeah, it turns out definitely wouldn't recommend it. It's like, 100%. oh yeah, no, still not worth getting. I no. still haven't gotten it, which according to that one South Korean doctor means I don't have any friends. Which again, <laughs> as someone with the best qualities of the Gemini sign, I know isn't true. I'm very social. No, you have to have a lot of friends. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. Well, good luck to you, Margaret. I hope it continues that way. Thank you. Me too. (laughs) So in other news, I thought this was a really interesting one this week. So the streaming giant Netflix announced they're adding a two thumbs up button (laughs) as a rating option on their site right now. It's just like plain old thumbs up, thumbs down binary, which I have always found kind of insufficient, though I don't rate very often. Mm -hmm. Um, Kat, what do you think? Like, is is this, even with the two thumbs up, is this enough rating options for you? As someone who does not rate anything You're like, I don't on care. my like various accounts, this to me is just one of those things where I'm like, well, why not go to a number system of one through five or something slightly more precise? What is up with the two thumbs? It's, or I, I just feel that there should be something a bit more precise if we're going to go in this direction. Yeah. Um, and... I, I find it insufficient. I still will not use it, but <laughs> perhaps if other people say it really helps the algorithm, I will start doing it because, you know, there are only so many reality TV shows around dating hosted by <laughs> Nick and Vanessa Lachey that I can watch. And so if it does take some of those shows out of my algorithm, I guess I can be open to it. We will see. I'm not sure. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, I do like the idea of helping the algorithms know what to serve up to me, Mm. you know, but it's like, I think for me, I like such specific varieties of trash that like the (laughs) nuance in this rating system is not like there's not enough nuance. You know, it's like I want the brightness and the casting of Inventing Anna, but I need a little more cultural commentary. You know what I mean? Greta, I just want to know, like, why do you want to train a robot to replace you? Because I don't. And that's why I don't interact with algorithms. It's like, it's my job to tell people what to watch and listen to and read. Like, it's not this computer's job. I'm not going to help it. I'm not going to help it replace me. That's a really good point. I suppose that is. 
<laughs> I love that point, Margaret. That is so good. Why am I helping myself become irrelevant? <laughs> Thank like, you. No, no, that's exactly why I'm not going to rape stuff. <laughs> right. Oh my God, you just completely blew my mind. <laughs> I resent it as a recommender. And also, uh, I feel like everybody has like an orientation to some extent, like either you're a recommender or you're a recommendee, mm. right? I am mm -hmm. a staunch recommender and it is yeah, no disrespect sure. to the many friends with exquisite taste who've told me to read, watch, or listen to things that I I definitely right. said I'd read, watch, or listen to, and then never ever picked up. <laughs> it's just this is a this is a it's an outward only system. There just there aren't inroads. Um, so I also resent. Do you think that's the Taurus side or the Gemini side? Oh, that's absolutely the Taurus side. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> stubborn Great. as hell. Hard agree. Yep, love it. Um, but I would also say I resent the algorithms trying to tell me what to do. They're like, you should listen to this, and I'm like, you're not my dad. Spotify. <laughs> I know how to find bands for myself. <laughs> it's funny you say it. I feel like I'm so much better at finding books and TV that with music, like I could use a helpful nudge now and then. And so if the robots have ideas, like I'm open to suggestions, you know, don't go to the robots. Yeah, go to Margaret. <laughs> this is what I was going to say is I, I had this dilemma. I was like bumping up against the fact that I hadn't found any new music for a while. And so last mm. year I went to my Instagram and I solicited suggestions based around prompts from the people who follow me. Oh, and I got like these amazing lists. I got like, you know, like what's a musician you think should be better respected or more famous and like send me one of their songs. And mm. so I have this like huge list and I found a ton of new musicians through it or learned to appreciate older ones really had not been giving Cheryl Crow enough credit. Mm. Cheryl Crow, you do have to give it to her. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. You love the crowdsourcing option, which I also <laughs> do I too, it. because I, I think I just want to know what people I like are yeah. enjoying you know okay you're right you're right i'm gonna forget the robots i appreciate that advice very much and you can always come to me directly greta i love to give recommendations and i'm much better than most robots okay okay <laughs> i'll hit you up this i love such that such a good hard sell <laughs> it really, really is it's perfect. <laughs> margaret cat thank you both so much this was such a treat thank you it was wonderful being here Our next guest is Jennifer Egan. She's the author of a number of novels, including most recently The Candy House, which she's calling a sibling to her 2011 Pulitzer Prize winning collection, A Visit from the Goon Squad. The books are similar in a lot of ways. They're short stories that play with form and perspective. They're from a variety of people who are all intricately interconnected. And they're about time and selfhood and other things that bring us together and tear us apart. Jennifer, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you for having me. So one of the main touch points in this collection is the idea of like this tiny thing where you can upload all of your consciousness into it. And I, I mean, this is a fascinating idea on a number of levels, because on one hand, you're like, oh, that sounds like it could be kind of lovely, but obviously it's also super problematic. Um, I, in a lot of ways, I feel like we're not that far from it, just given all of the things that are on our phones, which are tiny cubes, more or less. But I don't know. I was curious, like how much you think about all of these things that led to being such a huge theme in this story collection. 
You know, I think that I, in a way, I was thinking about all of them in the way that we all do all the time, just because we are constantly interfacing with this screen device. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'm not, as a civilian, really very interested in technology. I'm kind of a late adopter, and I tend to wait until, you know, a, a glass of Gatorade spills into my laptop to replace it. <laughs> Um, so I'm not, I don't, I don't feel an excitement about technological devices as a person, but as a writer, I'm endlessly fascinated by the ways that they interact with our lives. So I guess I'm always thinking about that. And I think that, you know, this device, which came to me fairly late in the process, Hmm. actually, I didn't at all build the book around this invention. It was almost the opposite that as I worked on it, I knew there would be an invention, but I'm not technologically savvy enough or honestly kind of on top of the tech world enough to imagine that I could posit some ingenious thing that no one else had thought of. And in fact, I have not because there's apparently a Black Mirror episode about a device like this, but which is which I presumed would be the case. And then the other thing was there were things I wanted to do narratively that I was looking for an excuse to do. Right. It's super convenient in terms of going back through memory. Exactly. So, and we do that in fiction all the time. You know, we call them flashbacks. They're, they're awkward. I've never (laughs) liked using flashbacks. It feels like, okay, so now you just get to like, tell us about the past. It's like, okay, now we're going to cheat horrendously. (laughs) Exactly. And I was having even more out there ideas. Like I was thinking, well, what if there were a chapter where someone is able to just track down all the people, a list of people that they've glimpsed from the corner of their eye and are curious about. And we get to find out where those people are now and what they're doing. I have to say that aspect of it was the most alluring to me. It's so alluring. Like who wouldn't want to do that? I can immediately come up with a list of people I'd be curious about. And so I thought, okay, I want to write a chapter like that. But once again, a little like with the flashbacks, but even more intensely, what, on what basis can I do that? I mean, am I just going to say like, okay, I can do this? I guess the answer is, of course, I can say that. You can do whatever you want. (laughs) Exactly. But I think what this machine did was in a way sort of embody all of the fun things a fiction writer gets to do just for the heck of it. (laughs) So one of my favorite characters in the Candy House is someone who's obsessed with authenticity and the idea essentially being that and I mean, I think you could you could make this argument even just based on how we are in this world with the tech we have in social media that, you know, the filters and all of the different ways that you can kind of project who you are as opposed to really being your authentic self. And he is driven crazy enough that he like just screams randomly in public to get people out of their bullshit, <laughs> which I just love so much. Can you tell us more about him? Yeah, I mean, so he is he is deeply sickened by what he sees as the artificiality all around him. And, you know, when you talk about wanting to reveal our authentic selves through mass, essentially mass media, there's kind of a paradox just inherent in that. In other words, why? (laughs) Isn't our authentic self the one who doesn't have to be um, broadcast? (laughs) Isn't there something inherently artificial about that representing And so anyway, he decides that this um, guy named Alfred Hollander, that what he he wants to find a harmless way 
to shake people in the moment mm -hmm. out of their <laughs> representations and self-consciousness and self-awareness and, and to view authentic extreme reactions. So what he comes up with is screaming at the top of his lungs in public. And, you know, as you can imagine, this is incredibly disruptive and alienating <laughs> and terrifying because if, yeah. just imagine someone oh screaming God. at the top of their lungs. You immediately think it's a horrible emergency and the reactions of panic and fear and all of that, he adores. <laughs> so this is obviously really unappealing, um, but he feels like, okay, I'm seeing, I'm seeing real things. I don't know. It's funny because that's one, especially with that, like, I find to be a very charming character trait in a book, but it's something that I would hate in real life, I'm sure. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, of course. And, you know, it's, I mean, as with, with so many things in this book, it, it, it makes a kind of sense in fiction, even as it is absolutely yes. absurd. It's and exquisite. I love occupying, I love being in the middle of that contradiction. Yes. So A Visit from the Goon Squad came out just over 10 years ago now. Obviously, it was super well received. You wrote a completely different novel after that, Manhattan Beach. When did you realize you wanted to go back to the cast of characters from Goon Squad? You know, I never really left them. Hmm. Uh, Goon Squad, while I felt that it was complete as a book, yeah. it always felt, it, the very nature of these kinds of books is how open-ended they are. Because each chapter is about a different person and it introduces us to another constellation with this particular person yes. at the center of it, which of course inevitably reaches in every possible direction, leaving a trillion, you know, um, unresolved characters and possible experiences. So I listened to The Candy House. And one thing I thought about a lot as I was listening to it is what comes first for you? Is it point of view and structure or is it plot or does it totally depend and you're just sort of following the constellation? bits as they go you know it's sort of a, it's an odd dialectic it, it, I I'm very driven by ideas and and so I have a kind of list of things that I'm preoccupied by that that will I'll be thinking about over time so for this one I was thinking about date you know the, the, our cultural obsession with data and the way that data analysis and collection is a great bigger and bigger part of our kind of cultural experience um but also about the, the way in which our data can't seem to predict a lot of really major events like 9-11 mm. or the election of Trump. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll have an idea like that, which is in no way does that seem like it's going to lead to fiction. I mean, that's extremely abstract. Right. Well, and it's not like super narrow either. Like you could do that yeah. in, you know, a trillion different ways. <laughs> exactly. So I'll have these kind of like abstract ideas what actually leads me in my portal if you will <laughs> is is time and place so mm. almost the the visceral opposition to all of that abstraction which is where and when and i know that before i know who which is kind of fascinating wow so so you might say like the country club in the late 90s or whatever yeah like i, I want a country club vibe huh. i'll think Wow. And uh, and so I'll I'll start writing from there. I write my first drafts by hand um, in a pretty meditative state where I just try to hurdle forward. I don't read what I'm writing as I write it. And handwriting really helps with that, um, especially my handwriting, which is pretty much illegible. Um, 
And then I read it over once the next day to re-enter the flow and continue the improv. Wow. Um, then I type it, then I read it. And then for the first time, I, I take a more analytical view. Okay, what have I got here? What's interesting? What's not? Of course, a lot of it is absolutely dreadful. But the question is, what can I do with it? What does it feel like it wants to be? And then I begin a process of revising, which I do mostly by hand on hard copies for the wow. same reason. And huh. I've actually, I, with two creators, I've designed a new website for this um, project, uh, jennervegan.com. There's a page of each chapter represented in its published form. And if you hover over the first paragraph, it vanishes and shows you a marked up manuscript. Oh my God, cool. And if you hover over that, it vanishes and you're looking at my original um, first draft with the date usually and the notebook number. And in some cases, there are layers even below that because I had a bunch of false starts before I even got to a workable first draft. Wow. That's yeah. crazy, Jennifer. <laughs> That's amazing. I take that as a high compliment. Yes, you, you should. <laughs> so, so wait, how are you keeping track of everyone then? Like this seems, you know, especially with all these different characters, different time periods, how old they are. I'm picturing like a very sweet cork board with a lot of string. No cork board, <laughs> no string. Um, so first of all, I, in the moment, I don't worry about keeping track sure. of much of anything that makes because sense. I'm just trying to come up with material that's alive. Yep. And Honestly, for the reader too, I think sometimes people feel pressure to make every connection. There's no need to. The one thing that I did need more in the kind of editing phase and just, you know, when I would take stock of what I had created improvisationally was a really clear timeline of when everyone was born, who, who, what ages people are with respect to each other. I needed to have that document with me all the time that showed me their ages. But other than that, it wasn't any more difficult to keep track of them than it is, I think, for each of us to keep track of the people in our lives. They were just people I knew, in essence. It's such a cool format. And it's so fascinating to talk to you about it. I feel like I could just pick your brain about it for hours. (laughs) (laughs) That would be fun. (laughs) That would be really fun. But it has been such a pleasure just to talk with you this much. Even thank you so much for sharing about your process and and your brain. It's a really cool brain, Jennifer. (laughs) Well, thank you. My brain is very flattered. Um, And it's been a pleasure talking to you too. In just a minute, we're going to hear a little bit of history about the Adopt Don't Shop movement. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Reporter Andrew Blum is the proud owner of a rescue dog in New York City. Her name's Sunny. Um, She's a rescue from... Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Our producer, Anna, has a new rescue named Bucket. He's here in Chicago, but he hailed from Arkansas. Bucket, come! Good boy. 
and his cousin Vinny, yes, actually his cousin Vinny, in Brooklyn is from Georgia. Now, all these southern dogs in northern cities are not just a coincidence. They are actually evidence of an intricate transportation network that takes dogs from places with too many to those with not enough. It's a really interesting story, and it's helping create a decrease in kill rates and transforming our image of the rescue dog. Now, Andrew, who wrote about this for Time magazine, traced the rise of the Adopt Don't Shop movement back to Hurricane Katrina in 2005. There were, you know, sort of constant news images of of people having to say goodbye to their pets or, or taking shelter with their pets or, or in shelters with their pets. Um, and that was a moment, um, as I heard the story told again and again, that the kind of animal welfare community was galvanized around the need to provide ways for people to bring their pets with them in case of emergency. And then alongside that, because there were these abandoned pets um, who people couldn't bring along, there was this huge effort to, to rescue them, to kind of reach out and find new homes for them. At the same time, there were fewer and fewer dogs available in northern states, largely because of stricter spay and neuter policies. So there was a need for dogs up north and those ad hoc groups and bigger organizations like the ASPCA that were already transporting pets after the hurricane were able to fill that need. And just two years after Hurricane Katrina, there was that ASPCA commercial. Yep, you remember it. Those sad puppy eyes staring at you from dirty cages to the tune of a super sad Sarah McLaughlin song. Yep, that one. Hi, I'm Sarah McLaughlin. Will you be an angel for a helpless animal? Every day, innocent animals are abused, beaten and neglected. And they're crying out for help. Andrew says that one ad helped to cement the virtuous image of taking in a rescue dog. And it gave rise to the adopt, don't shop hashtag. I, I mean, there have always been rescue dogs. I, I, I remember going to a, uh, going to Bidewe, a shelter in New York, to adopt a dog as a five-year-old. Um, and the Dusty, the dog we brought home, was the kind of only not pathetic one. <laughs> it was, it was a, kind of a sad, kind of a sad scene. I remember very vividly, you know, a long line of really miserable-looking uh, dogs and just one, you know, sort of one creature that became ours. Back in the '90s, less than 10 percent of dogs were adopted from shelters. Today, that number is closer to 30 percent. Those cultural trends are, are tricky. You know, they they also parallel the rise of the doodle. Oh, which is kind of the opposite. You know, it's like a, you know, like a test tube dog. Labradoodles and mutts may seem like they're on opposite sides of the dog spectrum. But Andrew sees the rise in popularity of both types as part of a general cultural obsession with dogs. And while there isn't a national shortage of dogs yet, rescue organizations' jobs are getting harder. And now in order to continue to transport more animals, they have to do things like fly them um, rather than, than, than truck them 500 miles. They have to fly them 2000 miles. You have to, you have to go deeper into Texas, you know, deeper into Louisiana um, to find the communities that still have um, excess animals. And as a result, the cost of moving them um, and the cost of, of running these safe transport systems goes up on a per animal basis. What does all this mean for the future of our beloved rescues? There's a lot of recognition that um, mutts are healthier. Um, that you uh, that you know you you want to kind of be, you don't want mutts to disappear. You don't want there to only be doodles or purebred dogs. And so the kind of third rail of the shelter community, sheltering community at the moment is the idea of of, of shelters no longer rescuing dogs but actually breeding dogs. 
Um, and that's, that's a kind of sort of fascinating turn that, that starts to freak people out. Um, because for decades they've, they've worked with the assumption that they have too many dogs. Um, but suddenly they realize they have too few. Andrew says we're still far from that day. And until then. People want dogs. There's just incredible demand for, um, for, for these animals, um, for, for lots of reasons that we, (laughs) that we know well, um, and they have to come from somewhere. a rescue pet share the love head over to our facebook group and add a picture over there we have to know names as well that is extremely essential if you're not part of the group yet it is super easy to join we would love to have you just go to facebook.com slash groups slash nerdette hq cats of course are also welcome the show is produced by me and anna bauman her rescue dog as we mentioned is named bucket and our executive producer is brendan banazak he has two rescue cats anchovy and rhubarb All right, we'll see you next week. We are on the precipice of eclipse season. So prepare for lots of radical changes that we have not yet experienced this year. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.